Well, what have we been doing in here? Well, we've been trying how to learn to love the scriptures. And sometimes the scriptures don't make it easy. Yeah. We were talking about this last couple of weeks that, you know, sometimes the Bible is so hard to read. There's always a catch when someone comes up to me and says, I've never read the Bible before. Where should I start? And it's almost like a bowl of spaghetti and it's all one noodle. Where do you start? And, and where are they going to start if they're completely undirected, that they're not going to get confused within half a page or so, or thinking, what in the world is going on with this book? And so it's difficult. It's difficult to read. You know, I remember when I was... Um, I first landed back in the evangelical church because in the Catholic church where I grew up, we really didn't study the scriptures. We had just the, the little readings that were you know, offered in the liturgy of the Mass. But when I hit the evangelical church, and I was, uh, and by then I was in my early 30s, and I was trying to figure this stuff out, and I was trying to read the Bible and understand it. And I remember one of the pastors telling me, well, don't worry about it because scripture interprets scripture. Scripture will interpret itself. I see Randy, that, that look of recognition. I don't know how many of you heard that before. But when you hear that, it's like, well, okay, what does that mean? And how does that work? And then the other one was, you know, just pray the Holy Spirit will guide you. And, you know, that, that is true in a certain general and devotional way that the intellectual understanding of the passage becomes much less important or fades away completely. And there is a sense that you get of the Scripture that, that is moving from the inside out. And that's a beautiful thing. But it doesn't answer those pressing questions, does it? Especially when those questions are driving us as hard as they sometimes drive us. Last week we were talking about whether women really had to submit to their husbands. you know, And we were talking about, since in the same breath, Peter and Paul talk about women, submit, women submitting to their husbands and slaves submitting to their masters. Doesn't that sort of... Up the ante, up the uh, you know, up the the bet here. How are we supposed to understand that? Well, when we put it back into context, historically, culturally, and in terms of the language, we came to a conclusion last week. I don't know if it satisfied everybody, but at least there weren't any women throwing things across the room. So it, we we got somewhere. When we do that. When we bring the, the, cult, the, the historical culture and the linguistic culture back in, we start to understand at least what the first hearers would have understood about these books. And that's probably as close as we're going to get to original intent. But that is critically important. You know, Jesus has many hard sayings, really difficult sayings, that are so difficult for us to understand today, but even more so because they were pitched to the culture of his day. They were absolutely designed to slap people in the face, to stand them up, to rock them off of their seat, because that's what was required. In order for us to hear something that is absolutely new, we have to be shocked past the filter of what we think we already know. And Jesus' teachings were designed to do that. Eastern teaching is like that, you know. It shocks you. It, it jumps to a non sequitur. It takes the quantum leap and tries to get you looking in a completely different space. And so I wanted to do that again today. I wanted to take another hard saying. We've been looking at family roles also for the last few weeks. And we've been intertwining that with some of the poems from the prophet, which is uh, Khalil Gibran's book that we've been going through on Wednesday nights. Because he starts with the family 
roles first as well in this book. He starts with love, he moves to marriage, and then to children. And, he, and he's dealing with all the commonplace, everyday activities that happen within our homes. Because that's where we live. It's amazing how we take our, our, our theology and we put it way out someplace on a mountaintop. And in this theoretical, abstract space, where we live is in our homes with the people that we see every day whose toothbrushes hang next to ours. That's the place this stuff has to work. If it doesn't work there, what good is it? And that's where Jesus starts. He starts within the roles of the family. That's where Khalil starts. He starts within the roles of the family because that's where everything is right on point. That's where the the rubber really hits the road. We didn't read Gibran's poem on children. And you know, I think I just want to do that right now. Let's just read that. It's in your inserts if you want to follow along. But I'm just going to read through it and just let it kind of wash over you and see what your first impressions are. A woman who held a babe against her bosom said, Speak to us of children. And the prophet said, Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have thoughts of their own. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you, for life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness, for even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. So, now that may resonate with you immediately, those of you who are parents, right? There's certain things in it that you're going to see already. Even if your children are young, maybe, but maybe not so much, you know. But certainly if your children are older, you have enough perspective, you've seen enough pavement that you understand what he's saying here. And yet at the same time, it's a hard thing to read. It's difficult for us as parents to see this in print, to be able to accept the fact that our children are not really ours. It's, it's a whole, it's counterintuitive, you know. But there's a heck of a lot more to bring out here. But what I want to do right now is just hold on to these thoughts, kind of file them in the back, put them on that back dusty shelf there for just a bit. And let's look at what Jesus has to say at Matthew 12, starting at verse 46. While he was still speaking to the crowds, while Jesus was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
right off the bat, do you see anything in common between the two? They're both definitely not like warm and fuzzy, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, what is Jesus doing here? I mean, he's being rude, isn't he? He's being ungracious. He's being dishonoring to his family and to his mother. What is going on? This seems to be out of character for Jesus, at least as we know Jesus, especially the Jesus loves me Jesus that we grew up with. Who is this guy? You know? Well, let's put it back into context again. This is what we have to do. Now, this isn't going to be a historical context. The only context we have for this is the context within the gospel itself. What's going on with Jesus? Jesus has recently come home from a really long hiatus, a long trip in the wilderness. We don't know how long. The scriptures tell us 40 days and 40 nights, but that's a symbolic number. There are 18 unaccounted years in Jesus' life. How long was he really gone? It could have been years. It could have been a long time. It generally is. Did you know there were 14 years between Paul's Damascus experience and his first missionary journey? 14 years. We just blip over that, you know. But there is a time of preparation. That initial experience that Paul had with Damascus, it took the scales off his eyes, it opened him up, but it didn't prepare him for what was coming. That was a long time. And possibly it was for Jesus as well. But Jesus comes back to his hometown, back to the Galilee, a changed person, a transformed person. They barely recognize him anymore. The people are astounded that this is this carpenter's son. And they're saying, you know, isn't, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't it Joseph's son? I mean, we know his brothers. We know his sisters. We grew up with this guy. Who, who is this? They're astounded, and then they're annoyed, and then they're angered. And then they want to stone him. They don't accept him. He comes back and tries to preach preach at Nazareth, and he is not accepted. He is basically run out of town. And this is where he says, you know, a prophet is not honored in his or her hometown. Think what it was like for his family members. Now, what was Jesus like when he was younger? We have no idea. But we do know in Luke 2 that after he did his crazy thing in Jerusalem and ran off, you know, when his parents finally find him three or four or six days later, whatever it was, Luke tells us that he stays with them, goes with them, and is in submission to them. There's that S word again that we talked about last week. He is in submission to them. Which means he must have blended in. He must have done what sons did. And after Joseph died, he probably did, because he's not mentioned again. Jesus would have taken the headship of the family as the oldest sibling. And he had, a, he had about f- at least four brothers that are named, at least two sisters, because they talk about sisters in plural. And yes, Aramaic doesn't have a word for cousin, so brothers and sisters could be cousins, but it's most likely that there were brothers and sisters. That was a typical Jewish household. He is the head of the household. He did what he was supposed to do. He took care of business. If he hadn't have done that, if he hadn't looked like every other young man growing up in the Galilee to his friends and neighbors, they wouldn't have been so astounded when he came back from the wilderness. And what had happened to Jesus? He had a radical identity shift. Now, I know this is Jesus we're talking about, and 
it may be jarring you right now to hear me talk about him this way, but this is the evidence that is left to us contextually in the Gospels. And at least we have to consider it. We have to deal with it. When did Jesus know? What did Jesus know? And when did he know it about who he was? Was it at birth? A lot of people think so. Was, was it sometime at, at bar mitzvah time? Some people think so. Was it in the river being baptized by his cousin John, who would have been called his brother John, right? Possibly. A lot of people think so. But whenever it was, there was such a radical shift when he came back that it freaked everyone out. And it put them at odds, put him at odds with them and with his family. And so here is Jesus coming back and trying to do this work. And then take a look at Mark 3, verse 20. Some commentators put these stories together. What happens, another problem for us in reading the Gospels and reading ancient scripture in general, is that they often don't put things chronologically. And this is especially true in the Gospels. The events are grouped thematically, not chronologically. And so we don't know. Things are happening at different times in different Gospels because they're arranged differently by theme. But it could be that these were concurrent events or the same event, and some commentators think so. So here's Jesus. He's in a house because we know in Matthew 13, he goes out of the house. So he's in a house. He, the, the crowd is so tight that his family can't get in, but he's told that they're there, and he doesn't even go to see them. He says, hey, look, these people that are following me, they're my mother and brother and sisters. Well, take a look at Mark 3. Then he went home. It's quite possible that this house that he's in was in Capernaum, which was his new home. They had moved from Nazareth, the entire family, to Capernaum at some point. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. This is Jesus' family. But think about it. Think about growing up with your brothers and sisters. And then one of them takes off and comes back and now calls him or herself a prophet and is running around town doing this itinerant thing and teaching and... and, How would you feel about that? And how does that blow back on the family? Because the people aren't having any of it. So what's the blowback and what's the the cost to the family in terms of their standing in the community, their ability to deal with their friends, to even have friends? And not only that, he is baiting those Pharisees. They're the powerful ones in their culture. He's baiting them. He's debating them, but he's also baiting them. And he's denigrating them, and he's making enemies out of the very people who can make life so difficult for anyone they choose to. And not only that, he's getting on Roman radar to boot. All of these things are happening. They want to take him home and get him under wraps. The best spin is for his own safety, but you've got to think that there's some face-saving motive in all of this too. Jesus knows this. He knows what's going on in his own family. He's had to face it. If they're out there coming to see him, it's probably not anything positive. Doesn't it make sense now what he is saying? Look, these people who follow me, these people who connect with me, who live with me, who work with me, they are my family, even in a way that blood is not. And see, this is mind-bending for a Jew because everything was about blood to a Jew. But here's Jesus trying to get this thought across, you know. Jesus had a new identity. 
new way of dealing with life. And this explains so much. And it explains this teaching that he's going to give here at Matthew 10. And this is one of those sayings that we just got to shake our heads. If you're just reading this unprepared, what would you think? Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Does that make a little more sense now in terms of the evidence that we have in other parts of the Gospels? Jesus is saying this because it's exactly what happened to him. His family thought he was nuts. They were trying to keep him under wraps. He had to find the connection with the people that were willing to move with this new identity rather than the old one. And then it gets really crazy at verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a tough one. Now, language comes and helps us a little bit here because the word for love in the Greek is phileo. Phileo is brotherly love, like Philadelphia, right? Brotherly love. It's a love that is marked by affection. It's a love that's marked by a friendly attachment. You know, you feel that connection there. In Aramaic, it's rahem. Rahem is the same thing. It's love that, it's like motherly love that just flows from this deep well and flows out. Again, marked by affection, marked by attachment, marked by connection. What is Jesus really saying here? If you are more attached, if you are more connected to your blood relatives than you are to me, to this new identity, to where I'm going, then you're not going to be able to go there. Like a boat anchor, you are stuck in place. Now, to a Jew, (laughs) this is crazy. The word for family in, in Hebrew is Mishpacha. Mishpacha is like Ohana in, uh, in Hawaiian. Maybe some of you know that because of the Disney movie, right? Ohana means family, but it means family in an extended sort of way. Remember that in Hebrew and in Aramaic, there's no word for cousin. So everybody was brothers and sisters. All the siblings were equal. You know, everybody was equal. The family wasn't just the nuclear family. It included all of the extended family and really moved out to the entire clan, to the tribe, to the nation. Everyone joined by blood. And of course, in those small villages where intermarriages were happening, a lot of people were related to each other by marriage or some other way. But Mishpacha was the idea of this extended family, and it was everything to the Jews. Being part of the family, honoring father and mother, being a part of that military-like hierarchy and precision, because that was survival. To be outside the family, to be taken outside the city walls was a death sentence. And so all of this was tightly constructed as a means of survival for the people. And the law, the Torah, and the civil law, the Torah, mandated that structure and kept it in place. And so that was the main idea of place identity. Everyone had a place. Everyone had a role in the family, in the clan, in the tribe. And that was like set in stone. 
And Jesus is trying to pick away at that. He's saying, unless you begin to deconstruct these tight identifications that you have with role, with relationship, with family, with culture, you will never be able to go where I'm going. And if you start going where I'm going, if you're not willing to take the backlash, if you're not willing to take the disapproval, if you're not willing to take all that is going to come your way, the sword, because of this direction you're taking, then you won't be able to go where I'm going. It's all about an identity shift. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. He's trying to get it across to them, and he's trying to get it across to us. What happens when we move into this place that he calls kingdom? What happens when we really drop everything that we think we know about ourselves in order to be in that kind of union with the Father, where you can say the Father and I are one? It is a landslide. It's a tsunami. It's an 8.0 earthquake in your identity shift and how that changes the way that you look at yourself, understand yourself, understand who you are. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. So now if we go back to the prophet and look at that again, remember when we talked about marriage? They were saying, yes, the two of you are together forever, but keep a space in your togetherness. Just like the columns of the temple have a space for strength and support. Just as the trees cannot grow in each other's shadow, remember how the husband and the wife are supposed to have a space. In other words, what Gibran is saying is that we have to keep our own sense of identity, who we are, not to lose our identity in a codependent way between husband and wife, but to keep that and then to bring that identity, bring that strength, individual strength of character, to the union. And now, in children, he's basically saying exactly the same thing. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. I love that phrase. I love that line. What does it mean? (laughs) What's he talking about? Life's longing for itself. Meister Eckhart said something really interesting. In trying to describe what it's like within the Godhead or trying to describe the Trinity, he said... (laughs) Get this. The father laughs and gives birth to the son. The son laughs back at the father and gives birth to the spirit. The Trinity laughs and gives birth to us. (laughs) All right, that sounds kind of weird. But think about what's happening here. There is, and, and notice that the laughing is present tense, not past tense present tense. What's happening in Meister Eckhart's understanding and what we've talked about with the perichoresis, right, with with the constant motion of the Trinity, is that there is a constant cycle of creation. There's a pleasure in the creation. It's a constant movement. And the pleasure itself gives birth to the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. We are the sons and daughters of the laughter of the Trinity, we are the result of their pleasure, of their deepest purpose, their tsebiana in, in Aramaic. It's a beautiful image. And this is what I think Gibran is trying to capture here. Our sons and daughters are not ours. They're the natural, inevitable result of life's longing for itself, of life laughing and producing. <laughs> and though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. 
You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you, for life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children, as living arrows, are sent forth. Ah. There is, in so many families, the tendency of the parents to tie their identity so tightly to their role as parents and to their children that they lose themselves. Sometimes it's often to the detriment of the marriage. If the relationship between the parent and the children becomes so strong, the bond between husband and wife starts to weaken, and that's the primary bond in the marriage. To lose ourselves in our children or to begin to vicariously live through our children like an overactive stage mom, pushing our children out into the world to do things that have now passed us by. You know, These are the kind of entanglements. These are the kind of codependencies. These are the kind of abuses that can happen when we don't realize these fundamental things. Our children are just passing through. We are their bows. We are their launching pad. We are there to give them the start in life that they need. But any of you who have had more than one child knows there is stuff in those kids that you had nothing to do with putting there. It comes out of the chute. They are who they are, and they establish themselves right away, certainly by age two. And it's like, where did that come from? You know, that's who they are. We're just caretakers. We're just stewards. We're kind of bystanders in many ways. We do the best we can. And yes, they'll be our children for the rest of our lives and <laughs> life in Orange County being what it is. They'll probably boomerang back a million times, but they're still their own people. And we have to hold lightly to those relationships. But this last paragraph is perfect. The archer, capital A, sees the mark upon the path of the infinite and he bends you, parent, with his might that his arrows, children, may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness. In other words, enjoy being bent. Enjoy being that impetus for your children to move forth into their world. For even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. To see our role Rejoice in that role, limited though it may be, more limited than we want to admit, more limited than we're comfortable with. But to retain our own identity is what's going on here. To not lose ourselves in our children, in our spouses, in our friends, in our blood relatives, in our tribe, in our nation, in our sports clubs, whatever it happens to be, whatever we attach ourselves to, to retain our own identity, even as we throw ourselves with abandon into the relationships and into the life of the groups in the community, to have that balance, to be able to keep those two things going. That's what's going on here. That's what's happening. Jesus is using the most strident language that he can possibly come up with to try to get this across. And as shocking as it may be to us to read some of these things, it would have been more shocking to a first century Jew. He's trying to wake us up. He's trying to wake them up. He's trying to slap us out of a trance to remember who we really are. 
Because we are something, we are someone absolutely uniquely special, absolutely cherished, absolutely treasured in a way that we really can't comprehend. And we sure don't live out in a daily way as we go about our lives with our insecurities and with our self-denigrating real constantly going off in our heads. Jesus is trying to wake us up to show us, like all those fairy tales, right? Sleeping Beauty, the prince or the princess, hidden under some other identity, only finally to become released later on. That's who we are. Where do you think those fairy tales came from in the first place? They came from those who had woken up. And then they tell the story and the way they tell the story about what it's like to live a life covered over with some other identity and then finally have that lifted. The prince's kiss, whatever it takes. And here we go, living the identity that we were really giving. We were talking in communion today about remembering who we really are by taking in everything that Jesus is, by dropping our defenses, by opening up, becoming vulnerable becoming malleable and permeable so that we can really see and feel and know what is real and who we are in relation to that reality. I think I've told you before that I'm adopted. All right? I have never met my birth parents. I don't know who they are. And there's only about half a dozen sheets of paper that I inherited from my adoptive parents that say anything about you know, my, my adoption and who I was, and it, it just gives the barest of details. And I was sifting through them at one point because uh, I, was, I, know, I was looking for something. And I came over on this one sheet that gave my birthday as January 30th, 1957. And I got so excited because my birthday is January 30th, 1956. And suddenly I got a whole year back. <laughs> Do you know how cool that is? Oh my God, maybe they got it wrong. Maybe I really get a whole year to do over again. Of course, it was the only one, and the rest of it was 19. But for that few moments, it's like everything. It's like, whoa, a whole year. It was just like, the scales fell off my eyes. I remember my mother telling me, and I don't know how she knew this or, or heard this, but she said that my paternal grandfather was a concert pianist. And I think that's what I was looking for. I was going through the papers again to see if I could find anything that corroborated that. And there was nothing there. Maybe she heard it from somebody at the time of the adoption. And it's like, that's a thought. How cool is that? You know? Because, you know, I love music and that would be such a nice connection to have. And that's something that kind of changes the sense of identity. Imagine if you came across some papers that somehow showed that you were connected to some famous person or famous family or you had some great inheritance coming to you, how would that change the sense of yourself? How would that change your identity? Why are people so fascinated with this DNA search thing that you can do now? You know, they want to find... And those ads play off that, right? And those ads you see about this, oh yeah, this could change your whole life. Think, how's it going to change your life? You're the same person. But... There is that tweak in your head when you realize, ah. See, this is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Moving into this new identity with the Father is like that, but on steroids. Imagine finally breaking through this identity 
to an identity that is so open, so expansive, so full. The truth of the matter is, you really are a princess. You really are a prince. You really do have royal blood. You really do have an inheritance. Not the kind that we normally think of, but something that's actually even more real, more intimate, more imminent than that. That's what Jesus is trying to show us. And if you get a glimpse of that, even for just a moment, it changes everything. Everything. But it has to start with our willingness, your willingness, my willingness to begin to question everything. To begin to be willing to let go of the identity that has served you well enough to keep you alive to this moment. And that's a scary thing to do. The roles that you play, the accomplishments that you've worked so hard for, all of these things that we identify ourselves with, our family, the blood relationships, to prefer them less, to let them go, is so difficult for us to do. And if we can't do that, then Jesus says, you'll never have this identity shift. Loosen your grip. Then slug through the uncertainty, (laughs) through the backlash, the disapproval that may come from other people who do not understand what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it. And if you can do that, break through into this new identity, this new reality, which Jesus says is the only way to the Father. There is no other. This way, who I am through me, is the only way. This is what it looks like. Are you ready? Are you willing? Can you take it? Come on. Let's pray. Father, in your infinite wisdom, you have set up this life for us in exactly the right way. For us to be able to find something about ourselves that apparently we couldn't find any other way. That even the difficulties, the uncertainty, the things that we have to face are essential parts of this shift that we need to find on our own. So thank you, even for the difficulties, because they are what grow us up and move us through. Thank you for the care that you give us, so carefully crafting every part of our lives in order for us to have all the raw material we need to find you back. Father, we love you, and we want to know more and more exactly what that means and exactly who we are. So keep us moving. Thank you for drawing us and never leaving or forsaking us. And we can only love you, we can only do any of this, because you did it first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.